There's only one book of the Bible that has Jehovah in it twice. What book is that? It's Isaiah. Jim started off with 12. Adam wrote me this week about 26. Adam wants to sing 26. He found out that it was a song. 26 is a song. 12 has, mentions it being a song as well, because we should want to sing about the Lord Jehovah. Right. Okay, I've had to alter plans a little bit due to the fact that I went on a duly called for rant about the things the Lord has shown us and trusting his word when it comes to prophecy and timelines, because the timeline reaches to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we want a timeline that honors the Lord Jesus Christ and the servants of God, and one of the servants of God was Cyrus. So we're going to start right back with this, and with encouragement, I will finish up what I had, and we'll call it quits for today, and next Sunday I will finish my introduction, my formal introduction to Isaiah. I don't consider this an introduction to Isaiah. <laughs> it's uh, wanting to show you the minor prophets. But we'll talk a little bit more about Isaiah. But next Sunday, and then the second service, Lord willing, we'll get into Isaiah chapter 1 and, and its verses that we might appreciate what this prophet had for us. So here we are, back to the timeline or the chronology from Isaiah down to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I need to make a correction to it that uh, Mark Marunick recommended, and, and it's needed. So let's get this out of the way. Amen. Did Jesus make any prophecies? Amen. Is the Pope a Catholic? <laughs> Jesus made some prophecies. Amen. And so he belongs in there along with John the Baptist and his apostles. What tremendous news hit the world with the angels in Matthew chapter 1. She shall bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus, and it's all big caps in our King James Bibles, for he shall save his people from their sins. And it just goes on from there with the angelic announcements, John the Baptist telling us that the axe is now laid to the root of the tree and what he was, the, there's a baptism of the Holy Spirit coming, there's a baptism of fire coming, and, and all the prophecies. But here we are at this timetable, and let me take just a few more minutes with it and get you familiar with it. I hope you looked at it last night. I hope you were following it in the first service this morning. But let's think a little bit more about it and what it says to us. Now, Isaiah started up here with Isaiah, and I explained to you that I have Isaiah up here on the first line of 727 B.C. because that is the year, the corrected proper Bible date, that Isaiah became king. Now, when you read Kings, he is called Azariah. You will not read in Isaiah. you got to go to Chronicles. By the way, for those of you that have read both, one is superior to the other in the details it gives, and it's Chronicles. Chronicles gives a lot more detail. So Isaiah's up there with Isaiah. This earthquake was in the early reign of Isaiah because we're told that in other places in the Bible. It's just referred to by Amos as his prophecy was two years before the earthquake. Well, when was the earthquake? And see, this helps us date things as to why Amos is on the top line because it was two years before the earthquake and the earthquake was while Isaiah and Jeroboam were both alive. And so that, that pulls Amos up. Every one of these can be pulled up. And I will hand out a, a 
page of notes to staple to this so that behind it, you will have the biblical reason why they're at the particular place they are, and there'll be a short definition for each one of these names, and it will be in alphabetical order to help you find any one of these kings, and it'll just be very brief, but it should help. Now that's starting out at the top, and so we have Isaiah. Now, what is, is chapter 6 a favorite chapter of Isaiah of anyone here? What are the opening words of Isaiah 6? In the year that King Isaiah died. Does that help? When do we know Isaiah 6 occurred? Well, we come all the way down and see Jotham right here. Isaiah died in 675 B.C., the corrected proper Bible date. Isaiah died, and that's when Isaiah got Isaiah 6 and that vision of Isaiah 6. Some like to go to Isaiah 6, and this is part of the introduction of Isaiah, and think that that's when he was called to the ministry. But if you get Isaiah called to the ministry in Isaiah chapter 6, what was he doing in chapters 1 through 5? It was just a reconfirmation to Isaiah and telling him that he had a terrible message for him and that he was, he was going to have to carry it to the Jews that they were going to be destroyed. The Lord Jesus Christ appeared to Paul more than once. He appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, but he appeared to him at other times as well to confirm his ministry. And so by remember, remembering that important verse in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1, in the year that King Isaiah died, you can find yourself on this timeline and identify that chapter 6 occurred right then. Let's go back down to the bottom. Now that I've corrected, it's John the Baptist and Jesus giving prophecies. And let me remind you about Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great is mentioned in the Bible because he was the first king of the Greeks. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar saw an image that had a head made of gold, and that head of gold stood for Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar saw an image, and the shoulders were made of silver, and the silver stood for Medes and Persians. And then there was brass chest for the Greeks, and there was iron and clay legs and feet for the Roman Empire. So Alexander's important just to have us noted here because he's in Daniel chapter 8, he's in Daniel chapter 11, he's in Daniel chapter 7, though the reference there is short. In Daniel chapter 7, what animal represented Alexander the Great? Leopard. What did God add to that leopard to enhance its speed? Wings. I thought a leopard was pretty fast by itself with four legs, but it had four wings because he conquered so quickly. The last Darius, not the one here, the, the, uh, and Xerxes, Daniel chapter 11 tells us about a king that stirred up the whole realm of Persia by his riches. Who is known as the rich king of Persia? Xerxes. Do you know what he did to fulfill Daniel chapter 11 and verse 1? He sent 10,000 ships. 10,000 ships. 5 million men across the Mediterranean to take out Greece before it got started. 
And it says he stirred up his whole realm. To get, to get 5 million men and 10,000 ships built is stirring up your whole realm. He was defeated by the Greeks. The Battle of Thermopylae, the naval battle, the Greeks sent him back home. But before he went, he burned Athens to the ground, and Greeks never forgot it. So you, if you know some of these things, they are in the Bible. Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, and Daniel chapters 10 through 12. Alexander was with, with, with what empire? Alexander the Great was a Greek. And the previous empire were the Persians. The Persians were a ram. Who was the he-goat with the notable horn between his eyes? Alexander the Great from Daniel chapter 8. So we want it on our timeline because it's working toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Alexander died in his early 30s. His empire was divided to his generals so that there was an empire north of Israel called the Seleucids and there was an empire south of Israel called the Ptolemies. And those two fought against each other. And they are documented in the Bible very carefully as the king of the north against the king of the south in Daniel. Why are they documented and everything else going on in the world is ignored? Because the church of God happened to be right between them, Israel. Israel was the church of God of the Old Testament. And so the, the breaking up of the Greek empire left the Seleucids in the north called Syria and the Ptolemies in the south called Egypt. And those two fought against each other. And so when you read Daniel chapter 11, it's the king of the north against the king of the south and back and forth. And it's identified and described for you and recorded for you in the Bible because Israel was right in the middle of them. So their wars were fought over Israel and the armies went through Israel. And they desecrated the temple and they desecrated Jerusalem at times. And so we're getting into that when we find this man down here, Alexander the Great, in 331 B.C., it's called the Battle of Gogamela or the Battle of Arbella. It was explained to you in detail. It is on our website in Alexander the Great with very informative and fun slides showing the Greek phalanx and how they fought battles and how Alexander could take on an army five times as great as his and defeat them every time, over and over. God blessed him mightily. The next man, I've already said this, but I'm saying it again for repetition because I was asked. His name was Octavian. Cleopatra is not a fantasy of a fairy tale. Cleopatra was the last of the Ptolemies of Egypt. Mark Antony was a Roman. She first of all seduced Julius Caesar and had Julius Jr. in the world. Octavian knew it. Just a moment. She first of all seduced Julius Caesar, then she seduced Mark Antony, and Mark Antony joined up with Cleopatra and were trying to preserve the Greek Empire. But God had other plans. And so Octavian, in a naval battle in 31, the naval battle of Actium, these are huge world events. By the way, when we pray for our government, we pray for SCOTUS, we pray for our president, do you trust God able to move the hearts of kings? Look at the kings he's moving. The God of heaven hath charged me to build him a house. Now, who would get that idea? But Cyrus the Persian did. And the Lord can take care of us. And he takes care of our government. I love praying with confidence that my God can help President Trump 
as much as he ever helped Cyrus. I never know what's going to happen because of the Lord and because of President Trump. But I trust the Lord at whatever happens. Let me tell you, if he threatens he's going to hit some nation he decides not to, that is his prerogative, and I love him for it. I love him for saying I'm going to, and I love him for saying I'm not going to. They can wonder all day long what he's going to do. Because they better wonder about it. And they better worry about it. But the Lord takes care of kings. This Octavian, he defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra. They were holding back from the battle. You can read about it. Everybody knows it. And they fled. They ran their ships toward Alexandria, Egypt, as fast as they could. Octavian went right after them. Octavian forced Mark Antony to commit suicide. Cleopatra committed suicide. Octavian cleaned up the relatives that were there that could give him any competition. He cleaned up Julius Caesar's son through Cleopatra as well. And the Senate of Rome declared him the emperor of Rome, basically the emperor of the world, Caesar Augustus, and gave him that name. And the reason I wanted to tell you all that is because we open up our Bibles and it says, in the days of Caesar Augustus, Luke chapter 2 and verse 1, we go, where did he come from? Right here. Right here, he came from right here. There was the Greek Empire, and then there wasn't a Greek Empire because there was a Roman Empire, and Caesar Augustus was its head. And he could decree taxes in Palestine. And Joseph took Mary, his espoused wife, to Bethlehem. And there we have Jesus is born uh, because of the Lord making all these arrangements. A very good question was asked at break time. How do we know the 483 years, the 69 weeks of years? Do you all understand the seven? There were 70 years. God told Israel by Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 25, the first 12 verses. Because you would not keep my Sabbath, I am going to take you, all of you Jews of Judah, most of you, into Babylon, and you're going to keep a Sabbath there of 70 years. Since you didn't like my seventh day Sabbath, you'll keep 70 years in Babylon. That's the 70 year captivity. Then when, when that ended with Cyrus the Persian's first year, when that ended, the 70 weeks of years began. 70 times seven is 490. So there's 480 year prophecy that began. And seven weeks of years or 49 years were for the building of the temple and the city. And, the, and it was in troublous times because there were enemies that hindered the activity. And Ezra and Nehemiah tell us about those hindering activities. Then there was 62 years to bring us to Messiah the Prince. Now, I just, I just said that that was his baptism. Why, why did I say it was his baptism? Is there a biblical reason to say it was his baptism? I just ran over it rather quickly and said that is when he was identified as Messiah. Because God identified him from heaven by saying, this is my beloved son. He didn't do that in his 29th year, his 20th year, or when he became a 12-year-old in the temple. He wasn't identified as the Messiah until God did that. The Spirit of God landed on him, stayed on him, and John the Baptist pointed him out to all of Israel, this is the Christ. I'm not the Christ. This is the Christ. This is the Lamb of God. Now, how do we know that it was his baptism? And this is why... Men that study the Bible carefully and trust the Bible always win. Because in Daniel 9, 24, it says six things were determined to happen in these years. And if you were, I want to read it to you. That's correct. 
Isn't that beautiful? Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24. I didn't have a slide for it. I started with verse 25. But here are the six things. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Daniel 9, 24. This starts the prophecy. Six things, and they're beautiful things. To finish the transgression. The worst, last transgression of the Jewish people would be to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. To make an end of sins. Sins were put away legally, and an end was made of them. And to make reconciliation for iniquity. We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. And to bring in everlasting righteousness. Perfect, everlasting righteousness was secured for every one of us by Jesus' death on the cross. And to seal up the vision and prophecy, to seal it up from the Jews, because the Jews were blinded from knowing the Scriptures, which Jesus said over and over again during His ministry. That's why He spoke in parables, to seal it up so that we could have it. But they, they weren't going to get it. And to anoint the Most Holy. When was Jesus anointed? At His baptism. So that's how we get the seven weeks plus the 62 weeks. 69 weeks of years is 483 years brings us to the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. And see, we also need it for this reason. In the midst of the week, He was cut off. How long was Jesus' ministry from His baptism to His crucifixion? Three and a half years. Now, I don't have those slides up in front of you, but you've been taught before, and these things I want you to know instinctively, habitually, forever. The young men in this church had better never forget these things, and you better commit them to your children as a legacy of truth from Daniel 9, the last four verses. They are a very important prophecy, and we differ from men on these verses. We want the right starting point. We want the right 69th week point. Baptism. We want the right midst of the week event, Jesus' crucifixion. And we only want one man doing anything, being the subject of those four verses, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. They make it the Antichrist. Dispensationalists and what we've been taught make it the Antichrist. They put a gap in it. Can't be a gap in a timeline. Timeline's absolutely worthless. God told Daniel, Six, these things are determined. There's going to be a prophecy made, and these weeks are going to play out. And here's how they're going to play out, and they're going to bring us to Messiah. So there's, there's Caesar Augustus. And uh, then Jesus is born. John the Baptist is born a few months in front of him. The angels announce the coming of the Lord Jesus. Remember this Darius up here. I'm in the foreign king column, and I've just drawn through Darius. And I, it's not Darius the Mede. It's Darius the Persian, and that's what he's called in the Bible. He's also called Artaxerxes. He's also called Ahasuerus. So that when you find Artaxerxes sitting on his throne, and in parentheses the Holy Spirit tells you the queen sitting beside him. Who's the queen? Esther. Esther. It's just, oh. These are huge events. Huge events. The law is passed by the laws of the Medes and the Persians. Every Jew is to be killed. Annihilation of the Jews. What does that turn out to be? Annihilation of all the enemies of the Jews through the book of Esther. And so these books just come together if you know these events here. See, I don't have Esther on the page because Esther is not a major or a minor prophet. It's a historical book. Isaiah is a prophet. 
So Isaiah told us about Cyrus in chapters 44 and 45 by naming him. But the fulfillment, I, I said this in the first service, I just want to say it again. The fulfillment, we backed way up in our Bibles to 2 Chronicles 36, because that's a historical book. See, all the, pro the prophetic books are put in the section called the prophets. And so we read the historical fulfillment about Cyrus. If we're reading from Genesis through, not always the best way to read the Bible. Because we read the fulfillment first. We read it in 2 Chronicles 36, that in the first year of his reign, the Lord God stirred up Cyrus to issue a proclamation that the Jews could go back to Jerusalem. Then we read it again in Ezra, because Ezra is another historical book. These historical books come before the poetic books of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. So we run into the fulfillment first. But we don't want to lose sight of the fact that Isaiah was written way before the fulfillment. Isaiah was 150. That's why this timeline is so important. I don't have 2 Kings or 2 Chronicles on it, but you know 2 Chronicles you have to read through Hezekiah, Manasseh, Ammon, Josiah, Jehoiakim, all the way down until you get to Zedekiah, the last king. And let me, I'm going to circle it. Right, I'm going to block it in right here. Right in here. Right in here is Cyrus sending them back from Babylon. That's when it actually happened. But Isaiah told us about it in chapters 44 and 45, 150 years early. We want to open up the book of Isaiah and love everything he has for us. The Lord has shown, given us this timeline to understand certain of the main players. Let's go right here. Do you know what is in Isaiah chapters 36 through 39? 36. Sennacherib brings an army and gets wiped out with 185,000 soldiers killed by the angel of the Lord. 37. Hezekiah is sick. 38. Hezekiah prays. 39. Merodach Baden comes from Babylon and Hezekiah makes a mistake and shows him all the treasures of the house of the Lord. There's four history events smack dab in the middle of the book of Isaiah. And those same history events are in Kings and they're in Chronicles. And it's what I mentioned to you last Sunday is being in the Bible three times. And when something's in the Bible three times, we ought to appreciate it that it's pretty important. And Hezekiah is identified as the king having the greatest faith of trust in God of all kings. No king before him, no king after him trusted God quite like Hezekiah did. How did God prove to Hezekiah that he was going to live another 15 years? He moved this, the shadow of the sundial back. The sundial had been invented and approved by which king? Who said that? Ahaz. It's called the sundial of Ahaz. It may have been his personal sundial. It was Hezekiah's father. But when you read these words, I want them all to, yeah, that was Hezekiah's father. When you, read, when you look at those three kings right there, for those of you that have read about Ahaz, Ahaz was terrible. Ahaz was a terrible king, but he was Hezekiah's father. Terrible! God allowed Syria and Israel to come together in a confederation and come and take hundreds of thousands of Jews out of Judah captive because of Ahaz. Ahaz was a terrible king. He built altars to other gods throughout Judah, wherever he could. He was, Syria had beat him. 
And he went to Syria to see the king that had beaten him to his face so that they could have a personal powwow and see each other. This is exactly how it's worded. If, you read, if you've read Chronicles, you've read all this. Ahaz goes to the capital of Syria, which is Damascus. He's in Damascus to see the king that beat him. While he's in Damascus, he looks around, he sees a temple, and he sees a new design of an altar to the God of the Syrians. And he says, this, this, is, a, this is how a man reasons when he's left the Lord. Syria beat me. Their God's better than my God. He tells his servants, write down all the dimensions of this altar. He takes the dimensions of that altar back and builds it in Jerusalem. And that, do you know what the Bible says? It gets to a place and the Bible says, this is that Ahaz. This is that Ahaz. He's Hezekiah's father. He wasn't the worst king of Judah. He offered his children in sacrifice, but the worst king of Judah was Hezekiah's son, Manasseh. You look at those three names. I'm circling Hezekiah right now. And there's Ahaz above him, his father. And there's Manasseh below him, his son. Then there's great Josiah. We thank the Lord for David and Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah and Josiah. What did God do to favor Josiah? He said, son, I'm going to have to kill you early to get you out of the way so that I can pound Judah. Isaiah 57 is going to teach us that principle. When you see someone die early, do not make a judgment like Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar that he was guilty of a sin. God can take someone early to put them on a bed of rest and give them peace in heaven because he's going to bring judgment on their family. It's Isaiah 57, verses 1 and 2. We are going to learn all kinds of wonderful things. Isaiah has the, has the greatest breadth of the information we're going to be given of any book in the Bible. Breadth. You can see the 70 weeks captivity there. Daniel's the marker. There were several times that Nebuchadnezzar came to the Judah and took captives. Daniel was in the first batch. Ezekiel was in the second batch. And then they came back in the first year of Cyrus when I showed you those scriptures. Okay. Let's, let's, did you see the four waves with these lines? We've got these prophets up here above the line before the end of Israel. This second batch of prophets before the end of Judah. Then the three prophets, which were after the Jews came back from Babylon. They had a totally different kind of ministry. And then after that were the New Testament prophets. There they are, the major prophets. These are contemporaries. And all the way down to here, all the way down to Zephaniah, was before Daniel. Daniel Daniel prophesied after. See, Daniel doesn't show up until right here. And these others are prophesying. They're, they're prophesying before the fall of Assyria because their prophecies are about Nineveh and Assyria going down. We want to go into the Divine Library and love every book that we take off the shelf. The largest book is with 66 chapters of the 17 prophetic books is Isaiah. You know, it does have a break in the middle, and I love showing you breaks. And I've already told you that the first five chapters are a break. The first five chapters are a warning to Judah and Jerusalem. The next seven chapters go to, go to Isaiah 12, 
And, and chapters 6 through 12, in the year that King Isaiah died, starts it off. Chapter 7, therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Chapter 9 is going to be wonderful counselor, the mighty God, and he's going to put on him the government of the kingdom of David. Chapter 8 is going to be naming two of his sons that are going to reflect prophetic warnings to Israel. Chapter 10 is going to be Sennacherib. Chapter 11 is going to be Jesus, the root of Jesse, being the ensign for us Gentiles. I mean, it's the book of Emmanuel. So you, I'm giving you the first three sections, one through five, warnings to Judah and Jerusalem. So it's warnings against sin. Repent before it's too late. Six through 12, the coming Messiah and his kingdom of glory, including us Gentiles. 13 through 24, God pounding the nations around Israel for how they've treated Israel. 13 through 24. First one, the burden of Babylon. First four words of chapter 13. But let's, uh, that's a division, and, it, and it's a useful division, and it was given to you last week in the attachment to your preparatory. But the 39 chapters of Isaiah that come first are like the 39 chapter books of the Bible in, in that they're mostly warnings. But I'm not going to make a big deal about this. Then the 27 books are mostly blessings, like the New Testament is a testament of blessing with 27 books in it. It's a favorite. Isaiah is a favorite of most Bible readers. Do you have a favorite chapter in each decade? What's your favorite chapter in the first 10 chapters? Mine's Isaiah 6. And the Lord got me with Isaiah 6 when I was 19 years old. So I love Isaiah 6. What about... The 20s. I didn't have room to do them all. How about the 20s? Adam's got his song. Chapter 26. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. Trust ye in the Lord Jehovah, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. Now I know I've got a bunch of you right here. Amen. 40. Amen. You love Isaiah 40. It's 31 verses are wonderful. And 53. You're mentioned many times, hallelujah, because the Gentiles are mentioned many times in Isaiah. Jeremiah is the largest book by verses, though it's only got 52 chapters. There's the number of verses compared to Isaiah. He's second wave, and he's very historical about Judah and Babylon. He tells the uh, political intrigue going on in those days, involving him personally, involving the kings of Judah, the final kings of Judah, the king of Babylon, and what happens in the destruction of Jerusalem. It includes God's mercy to Jeremiah through Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar let Jeremiah pick where he wanted to live and took care of him. And it has the 70-year prophecy in Jeremiah 25, to which Daniel added the prophecy of 70 weeks. That's just a little information on Jeremiah. This is just little bits of information about these prophets. It's the shortest major, only five chapters. Lamentations, what do you think it's about? Someone's lamenting. Who's lamenting? Who wrote it? Jeremiah wrote Lamentations because he is lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem. He details the horrible overthrow and the present circumstances. He blames the true culprits, not the Babylonians, but the disobedient Jews. Learn what God can and will do to his own when they disobey. We, we do not want to lament as individuals, families, or a church. So let's obey everything the Lord shows us. Let's obey it with passion. Ezekiel's the most difficult of the major prophets, 48 long chapters. He was among the captives, so he had a unique perspective. He came after Jeremiah. He was with Daniel. Daniel and Ezekiel were in Babylon together. 
Though he was distressing in Babylon, Ezekiel had many messianic promises. He blasts hypocritical religion as graphic spiritual adultery. Over and over, he tries to get the attention of the Jews of how terrible their crimes of idolatry were by describing them as adultery. His last 10 chapters, the 10 most difficult chapters in the Bible out of 1189, the 10 last chapters of Ezekiel, are him measuring some new temple. And the, the best explanation for that is a metaphorical representation of what we are today. That temple dwarfed anything built by Solomon. It dwarfs anything built by Zerubbabel and Herod. What, is there another temple that comes after those two temples that we ought to be concerned with? Not a physical temple, just the spiritual temple of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the cornerstone and it's huge. It includes Jews and Gentiles, and all nations shall flow to it. Daniel has six chapters of stories that children love, and then six chapters of prophecies, chapters 7 through 12. He was in the first captives taken, and he marks the 70 years captivity by being part of that captivity. His prophecies are precious. From Babylon to the 70 AD destruction of the Jews, and 25 years of world history in advance right down to us. Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, takes it right into us because it's the Roman Catholic Church after their power has, has been consumed, but they're not fully destroyed yet, and that is where we are right now. Mm -hmm. I remember many years ago when we first began eating on Wednesday evenings, a wonderful time with you people going through the prophecies of Daniel. Amen. Some of you will be able to remember that. How can I get you to love these prophets and read them? It's, I want you to love the whole Bible with me. Go ahead and ask me. Preacher? Pastor? Is the New Testament more important than these minor prophets? Yes. And I am not going to take as much time in Isaiah, though it's much longer than John, than I took in John, because I'm an able minister of the New Testament, and that's where the emphasis is going to be. The New Testament. I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That doesn't mean Paul did never quote from the Old Testament. He did, but he was always serving a purpose of the New Testament. You'll see that I'm going to do that. Many of you have, are taking bets right now that there's no way that I can finish uh, this book of the Bible in 66 months? What did I? <laughs> Weeks? Sermons? I want to be a minister of the New Testament. But we want, we want to learn these and love them. It's, they're part of the divine library. Hosea, he's the longest of the minors. He sees first. He's a contemporary with Isaiah. He's 14 chapters. He ministered to Israel, the ten tribes. The Bible tells us that. While Isaiah's preaching to Judah, the two tribes, Hosea's preaching to the ten tribes. He prophesied Israel's ruin, but he had hope for their future recovery. And he illustrated God's judgment and love by marrying a whore. Read the book of Hosea. He married a whore. He thought he could love her and keep her from running around and committing adultery like she had been, but he couldn't. She went back to her old ways, and it was an object lesson, and it's not just metaphorical. When God tells you to marry a whore, you marry a whore. And he did. Because it was to picture how God had treated Judah, Israel, excuse me, how God had treated Israel, and she kept wanting to commit adultery. It's a great object lesson. It's the book of Hosea. Joel. 
He's a true minor in size because there's only three chapters. He was early with Isaiah and Hosea by his placement and by Amos 1.1 that comes after him that tells us when Amos prophesied. He warned of Judah's judgment by locusts and then a recovery. Do we ever refer to Joel 2.25 that God is able to restore the lost years of the canker worm? It comes out of this. He prophesied a great recovery in the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. When Peter was questioned at Pentecost that they're speaking in tongues, they were drunk with new wine, what scripture did Peter appeal to? Joel 2, 28 through 32. And Joel 2, 28 through 32 starts out with the baptism of the Spirit in the first few verses, and it ends up with the great and terrible day of the Lord. What was that? That was the baptism of fire of John the Baptist, 70 AD, destruction of Jerusalem. Joel saw those things. His third chapter includes vengeance on all the Jews' enemies. For those of you that like militaristic language and conquering heroes and divine judgment and nation defeating nations, God is going to give you all that you can enjoy here in uh, these minor prophets. Amos has nine chapters about Israel along with Isaiah and Hosea, but he's ministering to the ten tribes, called the northern kingdom, depending on who you're reading. He was a simple herdsman. He starts off by saying, I was just a herdsman of Tekoa. What am I doing in the ministry? And you read a few chapters and he said, all I was was a gatherer of sycamore fruit. I just went around with a basket and picked up fruit. Let me tell you, Amos is a man of God. But he want, it was like Paul. You know, I'm less than the least of all saints. But I'm also not a whit behind the chiefest apostles. And so was Amos. But he, he emphasizes this in chapter 1, emphasizes this a couple chapters later, but he was a man of God. He blasted all the nations that partook in afflicting Israel. He lists Israel's various sins and God's efforts they have rejected. He is opposed by a priest that's named Amaziah, but foretells his judgment on the spot as the, as the book closes. This priest stands up and picks on this little gatherer of sycamore fruit and picks on this herdsman of Tekoa and says that what he's preaching isn't the truth. And Amos had a little prophecy just for him. You don't mess with the men of God. Right. Remember 42 children that made fun of Elijah's bald head? Elisha's bald head? Go up, thou bald head. Elisha cursed them in the name of the Lord, and two she-bears came out and taught them a lesson. Tore 42 of them. Obadiah, 21 verses. Our, cha our chapter for the day, Obadiah. This is the shortest book. What a name. Obadiah, servant of the Lord, servant of Jehovah, with that ayah at the end. He blasts Edom, the descendants of the hated Esau, and a neighboring nation of the Jews. He lists Edom's sins. The, the main fact is that they love Judah's chastening from the Lord. And you want to learn this for Isaiah because Isaiah chapter 34 is going to be very, very similar as Isaiah blasts Edom. And Obadiah promises God's vengeance on them. Vengeance is his. Right. And you know, when you, if you read these minor prophets, they don't take vengeance. They don't call for an army. They say, God's going to do it. God's going to do it. And we should learn that. Right. God will take care of his church and will destroy his enemies. I've been through Jonah recently. You know all about Jonah. Jonah was 160 years before Nineveh was overthrown, but he didn't go with a ministry of them being overthrown. He went with a ministry that if they would repent, God would have mercy on them. 
God is merciful every day to the wicked. He sends his son and his reign on the evil and the good. I do want you to remember and never forget that Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Damascus was the capital of Syria. Syria was one enemy. North of it was a bigger enemy. The empire of Assyria, its capital was Nineveh. The capital of Nineveh was how big? The Bible says it was a three-day journey for Jonah. That is a big city. It wasn't discovered until 1841 or something like that when a Christian archaeologist went and started digging in the mounds across the Tigris River from Mosul. You've read that, that uh, city in the battles we've had in Afghanistan and Iraq, M-O-S-U-L. So he, took some, he hired some laborers, went across the Tigris, dug just a little bit. Aha. The Bible's true. The temple of Sargon, uh, the palace of Sargon, they found it. Jonathan, I've heard rumors that you're interested in apologetics. Go online and look up Nineveh. Find out when it was discovered. Search the word Nineveh in a Bible and find out that God spoke about Nineveh for hundreds of years. But they couldn't find it because it was under mounds. Do you know why? Because God said, I'm going to make this city mounds. All in the Bible. The Bible is a wonderful book. Amen. We're going to be reading about Assyria. Who was, who was the king of Assyria that came and besieged Jerusalem and wrote that nasty letter to poor Hezekiah? Was that, was that from the capital of Nineveh? After he lost 185,000 soldiers, where did he go? Back to Nineveh. He went into a temple there to his god named Nisroch. And while he's asking Nisroch, how did I lose 185,000 men in one night? His sons came in and cut his throat. I mean, don't mess with the Lord's people. Do you know who the Lord's people are in this room? Jonah showed practical mercy of a short nature, but he, God crushed Nineveh 160 years later, and it's detailed in... Um, 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 what minor prophet is it detailed in? Nahum, yes. Yes. Micah. Micah is the last of the early prophets, along with Isaiah and Hosea. Seven chapters. Dated very similarly to Isaiah and Hosea. When you read the first verse last night, there was one king missing. Isaiah was missing. So Micah started a little later and ended up about the same time under those last three kings of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. He preached to both Judah and Israel, unusual dual ministry. He promised judgment on both, but a remnant would be saved. And he is the one that identified by name in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, where Jesus Christ would be born in little Bethlehem. There they are. We've already been down to here. We've only got six to go. Nahum. When I was at Bob Jones University, 19 years of age, I found a few other weirdos like me who enjoyed sitting in a closed room and finding the greatest text in the Bible that brought God the greatest glory. You've heard about this before. Now, Nahum chapter 1 is rich. I knew that I could go to Nahum chapter 1 and find some great texts. And it's true, because this prophet is blasting Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and he details it, and he mocks them. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he tells those Ninevites 
to gird themselves up and get their munitions all prepared because there's a battle coming and you want to be ready for it. You want to be ready for it. You want to fight like men. You get strong and you get courageous. You fight for your city. But then there's a consortium of nations with the Babylonians leading them and the Persians and Medes being part of them that came and wiped the city out because they had picked on the people of God. And so we have this book in the Bible, three chapters about what God's going to do to the capital of the Assyrian Empire. He's in the second wave, capital of Assyria, Nineveh. I just told you about that one. Habakkuk has three chapters. Does anybody in here like the last three verses of Habakkuk chapter 3? Though there be no, fold, no, no, no sheep in the fold, though there's the, olive, the, uh, the vintage will fail, there'll be no fruit of the olives, total economic disaster, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. You, lo you like those verses. It's Habakkuk. What's Habakkuk? Habakkuk is a conversation between Habakkuk and God. Habakkuk admits to God that Israel's very bad and that they deserve to be judged, but it's not fair to bring the Chaldeans to judge them because the Chaldeans are worse than the Israelites. So that just isn't right. And so the Lord takes up in chapter 2 and says, I think it's kind of right uh, that I use the Chaldeans for a little while because this is what I'm going to do to the Chaldeans as soon as I'm done with them. Well, that gets Habakkuk all excited, so you get a song in chapter 3. That is Habakkuk. You have heard these words from Habakkuk. The Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth be still. That is Habakkuk's submission to the fact that everything God does is right. But, but in its context, it's just beautiful. Have you ever heard this? Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil. That's in Habakkuk. Because Habakkuk is reasoning with the Lord, how can you look on those Chaldeans and let them do that, what they're doing to us? Oh, and the Lord says, just for a little while. Just for a little while, then I'll take care of them. Then Habakkuk sings in chapter 3. You say, is that really in the Bible? Is that all the book is for? Go read it. We love the last three verses. Zephaniah, great-great-grandson of Hezekiah. You should have noticed that last night. You say it was spelled differently. Oh, okay. Cephas, Peter, or Simon, which is his name? Thank you. He preached against Judah about 25 years before Nebuchadnezzar. Because we're, it's, he's identified. He identifies himself as to when. He warned and threatened them to repent before their destruction. He foretold the ruin of the neighboring nations. And as we see many times, he concluded with hope for the future. I hope as you read Isaiah, that you, if there's a chapter of 20 verses, 17 of them may be a warning of judgment. But if you read carefully, there's going to be a promise of comfort and a promise of blessing stuck right in the middle. You better be very attentive. Some of them are only one or two verses long, and he immediately returns to warnings of judgment. Mm -hmm. Little tidbits to comfort us. He wasn't going to let Jerusalem be destroyed forever because Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Haggai, now we're down to the last three. The Jews have come back from Babylon. Remember, this is the third wave. The Jews have come back from Babylon. Little Haggai, I love Haggai. I've mentioned Haggai so many times to you. What do I love about Haggai? They were all discouraged about their little tiny temple they were building. They looked down at the strings and stakes in the ground, started bawling. The old men started crying. This doesn't look anything like Solomon's. And God came to Haggai, through Haggai, to Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest, 
and said, this latter house will have greater glory than the former house. This little temple that you're working on is going to be more glorious than Solomon's temple was because the desire of all nations is going to visit this one. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. God sent Haggai, this prophet, and this one, the penultimate prophet in your Old Testament, the next to the last one, Haggai and Zechariah, to help with rebuilding. Ezra tells us specifically when and what their ministries were. Do you remember in chapter 1, Jews, consider your ways. You're putting wages into a bag with holes in it because you haven't built my house, but you've built yours. The second temple would be more glorious. That's in chapter 2. And then he told them good conduct does not cover bad conduct. A very important rule in chapter 2. Zechariah, same prophet, I mean, same, same ministry, same time. But he wrote 14 chapters instead of two. Much larger book. Many prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ riding into Jerusalem on the foal of an ass. 30 pieces of silver, price being paid for him. Many prophecies of the Lord. A lot of obscure visions. It's a more difficult, it's the most difficult minor prophet. Do you remember the recent explanation that I gave to you of the four fasts that became feasts when they asked the Lord, should we, should we keep these four fasts that we've been keeping the 70 years in Babylon? And the Lord said, no, turn them into feasts. Because now it's a time of gladness. That's in Zechariah. Last book. You have the timeline in front of you. I'm not going to flip through all the slides to go back to it. You have the timeline in front of you. Find Cyrus. That's when they came back. Find back to, ba back to Jerusalem, 70. Back to Jerusalem. Then go over to the far left column of names and go down it. And you're going to find, you'll see Zerubbabel there. But then you're going to see Nehemiah. And it's a number of years. Ezra and Nehemiah did their best to take those recovered and regathered Jews and provoke them to righteousness. But they had fights on their hands. Do you remember Nehemiah chapter 13? He had to take them by their beards. He had to pull their hair out. He had to smite them. He had to curse them for two chief reasons. They were marrying like Solomon. And he warned them about their bad marriages. And he warned them about, about not giving the portion to the priests. So they weren't giving properly. Remember that about Nehemiah. So these Jews have been regathered. They should have learned their lesson. But like we, we oftentimes commit the same sins, even though the Lord's warned us. So did the Jews. And so along with the ministry of Nehemiah and after Nehemiah, and Nehemiah was around for quite a while, along comes Malachi to help Nehemiah. The last prophet of the third wave and then there's 400 years of Old Testament silence. Ezra and Nehemiah purified the people, but they backslid again. That's why Nehemiah 13 is filled with him cursing the people for committing the same sins again. They had backslid in faith and worship. There's chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1. Try this on your governor. Remember when I've shown you that verse? Try it on your governor. They had slipped they said, Where, wherein hast thou loved us? They lost their faith. Wherein hast thou loved us? He said, take a look at the border with Edom. I've loved you and I've hated Esau. Can't you see it? They lost their faith in worship. They weren't taking care of their priests or marriages. It's in chapter 2. This is chapter 2 of Malachi. 
and then their evil and their giving was in three. The priests were wicked here in chapter two. And God said, I'm going to I'm going to spread your solemn feast on your face like dung. It's he's he's ferocious against the priests. He's ferocious against the treachery in their marriages. And then in chapter three about the evil, he lists some of their crimes and their giving. He said, if you'll bring your tithes and your offerings into my storehouse, I'll pour you out a blessing that you can't receive. So you've heard those words. This is where they are. And this is the time frame. We've got regathered Jews that are already compromising. Then there's going to be 400 years of silence. Malachi has two promises of John the Baptist. Malachi 3.1 and Malachi chapter 4. I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord. This prophet, Malachi, and the Old Testament ends with what word? If they didn't obey. And were they cursed? They were destroyed in 70 A.D. These are the minor prophets. These are the major prophets. These are the 17 last books of the Old Testament. This is one quarter of your Bible. This will help you understand Isaiah. I will finish introducing Isaiah next Sunday, and we will get into Isaiah chapter 1. You can look at that timeline and get familiar with it. I will send you notes for that timeline to help you with it at home. I hope that when you open the book of Isaiah you are entering that library. See, that library is in my... When I, open, when I open this, I'm going into the divine library and I'm taking a volume off the shelf and I'm asking the Lord to show me something from it. And I delight in the words. And at the moment, I don't care about anything else in the Bible but what I'm looking at. And right now it's Isaiah. You say, well, you just showed us all the prophets around Isaiah, yes, for, so that you could see Isaiah in its proper perspective. He was the first one. He was way up there with Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. That's his ministry. He's going to cover 800 years of the history of the church of the Old Testament to its destruction and us being grafted into it. The first five chapters are warnings against Judah and Jerusalem. Chapters 6 through 12 are the book of Emmanuel. 13 through 24 are the warnings against the nations around Israel. There's the first third of the book in three sections just to help you. Right now, just stay in the first five chapters and get familiar with them. And we'll trust the Lord to lead us through them verse by verse in a quick fashion to see the message that Isaiah brought to the people of God. They didn't listen and they were judged. Then God had mercy, delivered them by Cyrus, and then delivered them and us, his elect, the remnant, by the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen. Amen.